Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. To start off with, as usual, we've assembled a star panel to discuss some of the stories in this morning's newspaper. On one side of the table, here is an award-winning financial journalist with more than 25 years' experience. She's also a businesswoman in her own right, an entrepreneur, founder and CEO of Clear Inc. And now, God help her, she's on the board of RTE. And she's back in the trenches with me here this morning on News Talk. Margaret, good morning. I see you've gone upward and onward from News Talk. You're now in the hallowed uh, vaults of RTE. It must be slumming it this morning for oh, well, you. Well, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best to do what I can for journalism in this country, Ivan, you know. Alongside her is the Fianna Fáil spokesperson on, I'll take a breath here, Communications, Climate Action and Environment, uh, Timmy Dooley, who Sean Dorgan tells me successfully resisted the threat of a second Fianna Fáil TD in the last election in Clare. How plead you? I, I must have been one of the few that accepted not just a running mate, but two. Uh, you'd have been familiar with that, right. <laughs> Ivan, the, the, the sacrifices we make. Thank you for joining us. And on the far side is the former Minister for Health, amongst now amongst number of other posts, Transport and Sport, now Minister for Social Protection, Leo Radker, and of course a, a putative candidate for Taoiseach. You're all most welcome, Leo. You've taken a break from your beer and pizza tour of backbenchers. Have indeed spending the day in uh, the day in Dublin after farmly after this for Japan Day, which would be great. But uh, right, you know, I sounds in, like in, a total bore fest in, in a different <laughs> life. Ivan, it could have been you. Oh, stop! <laughs> you, could be, you could be going around okay. going around the country yourself. We'll now. move rapidly on to the front pages of the Sunday papers. Three of the papers go big on the latest twist in the movement of Hollow Street National Maternity Hospital to St Vincent's Hospital campus. The Sunday Times take is the Bishop of Elphin. Uh, the Right Reverend Kevin Doran has said, Bishop says new hospital must obey the church. A healthcare organisation bearing the name Catholic while offering care to all in need has a special responsibility to Catholic teaching. The Sunday Independent has the 25-page agreement between Hollis Street and Vincent's and the department revealed the deal to curb nuns' role, full details of maternity hospital contract, no religious ethnic or other distinction and Harris saying failure is a betrayal of women Uh, and then we move on to the mail which is an interesting twist on it. You'll recall that there was an allegation that the nuns, the uh, Sisters of Charity hadn't paid three million under the redress scheme liabilities. Their headline is Nuns 3 million redress bill paid. Basically they had 5 million of legal costs uh, with the commissioner tribunal and they waived that in lieu of the 3 million and so that is uh, a contra item and there is no money outstanding there. And the Sunday Business Post, while it has a site uh, story about the new uh, Maternity Hospital saying NAMA site earmarked for Maternity Hospital and was in negotiations up to 2012. It actually went uh, for an IDA site in the end. But their lead is, is a different story. There's been a lot of back chat around uh, town here about insurance companies, for banks exiting London, not coming here. And the, the word has been, despite the best efforts, that it's actually the long regulatory arm of the central bank is to blame. Well, there's an FOI revelation, which is Mary Mitchell O'Connor, the Minister for Enterprise and jobs. Central Bank is closed for business. Minister for Job, regulators get blamed for blocking Brexit jobs. I'm sure that story will run. But let's focus this morning with our panel in relation to the National Maternity Hospital. It seems there's a couple of net uh, issues uh, that are involved here, uh, Margaret. 
is there absolute clinical independence and autonomy to carry out sterilizations, vasectomies and other treatments, maybe even abortion treatments, under this agreement as published today? Or will the long arm of the Catholic ethos decide these issues? Well, I mean, I think it's clear if you look at even what's going on at the Matter Hospital and elsewhere that the ethos of the Catholic Church reigns at these hospitals. There was a story saying that women who are in the Matter um, cannot get birth control. It will not be the uh, pill. The pill. Um, it, I think uh, condoms might be dispensed um, there, but even women who need it for health reasons when they're in that hospital have to have people bring it into them. So we've also heard from um, doctors who work at Vincent's who say that those procedures are not do not are not allowed to take place. So, for example, if you're a, a you know you want a vasectomy, you have to go elsewhere. If you if so, I mean, I think there's no doubt that there will be clinical issues here if the National Maternity Hospital goes ahead. But this agreement has now been published, and and what it says is, and it actually uses the term, and Rono Manny has has verified this, that the current practices in the Hollis in Hollis Street will prevail, and that what's been put out there in a kind of tribal church-state war is actually misinformation. In terms of that, what's your assessment of that? I, I that doesn't ring true. Um, to me, I definitely I don't think that's the case. Um, I think that if you see that these practices are already taking place at St. Vincent's, where due to their Catholic ethos that certain procedures cannot take place, that that will go through to the National Maternity Hospital site. I can't really see any clinical independence when they are going to both own it and run it. Leo, on that net issue, is there clinical independence and autonomy or not? Yeah, there will be uh, clinical independence. Um, the National Maternity Hospital, which will be co-located at, at Elm Park uh, beside the existing St. Vincent's Hospital will have its own board um, will have clinical and operational independence will have its own budget the mastership system uh, which is so important to the way our maternity hospitals will run uh, will remain so there will be uh, clinical and operational independence for the new hospital um, and I do think it's really essential that it does go ahead you know I used to work in Hall Street and it's a great hospital but it's it's 20 years ago that it should have been uh, rebuilt and the only place it can go um, because what you do in modern medicine is you co-locate maternity hospitals with, with adult hospitals. The only place it really can go is St. Vincent's. So it was necessary to um, get a deal between these two voluntary hospitals. They're both private institutions. They're both older than the state. Uh, the state owns neither of them. And what was necessary was to get a deal uh, between the, the, the two voluntary boards, the two voluntary bodies that run those hospitals uh, to allow them to relocate to St. Vincent's. And bear in mind, Vincent's were never all that keen really in having this massive new hospital uh, joining them on their campus and I guess that's why it became so difficult uh, to um, to come to a deal. Now I was involved in something different which was the children's hospital. And I want to come to that and ask you about your, your own direct experience but I, I just want to clarify this issue because this seems to be the nub of it. You have a set of people like Peter Boyle, very respected, former master, saying uh, come on you know what I mean? There won't be, there is an ethos that will prevail. You, you said the independence board. What we now have is visibility of the board. It's a nine-person board, four put forward by Hollow Street, the management of the hospital, four put forward by the Vincent Group and one international clinician, which strikes me as that could go either way on certain issues. Are you absolutely reassuring listeners today and the public that there is no procedure that would take place in a public hospital. We'll just say if the Eighth Amendment is repealed or whatever, that there is, because we have the Bishop of Elfin coming out today saying, no, 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 we're quite clear here. Uh, we have a certain ethos. The, you know, the, the Sisters of Charity aren't in it for the crack. 
They're in it for the commitment to their vocation. Are you giving an absolute cast-iron commitment that every procedure that runs counter to the Catholic ethos will take place in this new maternity hospital if it goes ahead? Every procedure that's legal in the state, yes. And, you know, this was one of the issues uh, when it came to um, co-locating this hospital. Um, Vincent's initially wanted it to be all under a single board. And the reason why that's not happening is because um, what Hollis Street wanted is to is to maintain their ethos, if you like, uh, which is somewhat different uh, to St. Vincent's. And that's why they insisted on retaining the mastership. And that's why they insisted on retaining their board. But bear in mind the most important thing here. Um, you know, it's, 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 I have a difficulty with the fact that some procedures like vasectomies and so on are not available in some of our publicly funded hospitals. But that's, that's uh, uh, something we need to deal and with, deal with separately. And the ligation is not yeah. available um, either. But, but, you know, what you can do in all those cases is go somewhere else. What's fundamentally different about this is that what happens now in Hall Street, in the Coombe, in the Rotunda and in St. Munchens in Limerick, if a pregnancy goes wrong, uh, if a woman is in serious trouble and that woman needs uh, you know, an intervention from a vascular surgeon, needs to go to ICU, needs, needs a different specialist other than an obstetrician or gynaecologist, mm-hmm. needs a cardiologist if, 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 if they run into a heart problem after pregnancy, at the moment uh, you have to be transferred by ambulance to an adult hospital and that is a major risk. Uh, and that's why we need to go ahead and, and co-locate okay, these hospitals. Okay, Jimmy Dooley, we will come to the... You, poli- you know, it's too late to choose a hospital okay. at that point. You know? to, we will come to the politics of the situation the Minister's handling in a moment. Mm. But just on this next question, what do you believe to be the truth in terms of clinical autonomy? Well, having read the documents in both the Sunday Independent today, it's difficult to see that the notion of clinical uh, independence will be there when you when you juxtapose that uh, with Justine uh, McCarthy's article in, in the Sunday Times, and in addition to what uh, Bishop Dorn said, and 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 he did mention that that was a general comment. There is also a statement from Tom Lynch, who's chairman of the Ireland East Hospital Group, which we understand includes St Vincent's, where he says that locating the maternity hospital on its campus would raise issues of medical ethics. Lynch told Jim Breslin, who's the Secretary-General of the Department of Health, that canon law obliged a hospital on Catholic land to operate by Catholic rules. Now, that opens up, for me, some real concerns, particularly, and you've, you've identified one, in relation to whatever changes may come around uh, as a result of the decision uh, that are being taken this weekend uh, in the Constitutional Re- Review Group and anything that flows from that. That may have implications as to what uh, services are provided at the hospital. And I, I think where the public would find the greatest level of disquiet would be if 300 million is to be invested. And it has to be invested. And this hospital, as as the Minister has said, is absolutely essential and it needs to be co-located. Um, and in my view, Vincent's is, is, is the best option. But there has to be... Uh, Clarity given to all concerned that there will be independence, particularly in the area uh, of of the ethics. Do you remain um, to be convinced? Well, I do. If if on the one hand somebody as senior as Tom Lynch, who is chairman of this group, is 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 clearly saying uh, that a hospital located on Catholic lands will have to operate by Catholic rules. Okay, let's hear from the Minister for Health because there is a political angle to this. Is you know last November. Uh, Enda Kenny and Simon Harris were photographed overlooking a model of this. They announced the deal and now six months later they have problems with it. Let's listen to the Minister. 
no, I can tell you there will be no rent paid from the National Maternity Hospital. No money will change hands between the HSC um, or the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group in relation to the provision of the National Maternity Hospital. And before we get anywhere near that process, bearing in mind we're only at the planning permission stage with Ambora Planola, um, I will make sure, and that's the purpose of my letter to the HSC today, that all due diligence is done, that all contracts will have to go through a rigorous process, including the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. And I also welcome the fact that the Oireachtas Health Committee will scrutinise and provide an oversight role in relation to this. We're going to get this right, Chris, but we are going to provide a project that should have been provided decades ago. Uh, Minister for Health, Simon Harris, speaking to Chris Donoghue on News Talk Drive during the week. Uh, Margaret, it seems to me that right now, and vis-a-vis Twitter, that Simon Harris is trying to face in both directions at the same time. He's saying there's no plan B, this has to go ahead, and yet he is citing all the reasons for concern, clarification and so on. A, why didn't he do that last October? And secondly, is he being disingenuous? Well, I would kind of look at this from a business angle as well, right? So even if you take uh, away the ownership, say, from a religious organisation, and let's just say this is a private commercial organisation, why would you give a private commercial organisation with a history of lawsuits and abuse against the people in its care a 300 million euro state asset? I mean, that makes no sense. You would have people jumping up and down, for example, say say the group that owns uh, BlackRock Clinic or something, that they decided that they, you know... Well, that- one, one reason you do that is you want to co-locate it. They own the site. They're given the site for free. Um, so that's a, a, but chip, are they, a bargaining but the chip. Is, but are they giving the site for free? I mean, will ownership, who no, will own the, the site? But, but still, no, but I mean, it just on the does min- not do you make any sense. My, my question to you is is very much political question. Like, here you have this kind of very sort of nubile minister. He's 30 years of age and he's all over Twitter. He's all over raising concerns about this. If he had said nothing, met with everyone, he could maybe make an official pronouncement. And now we have a situation. It's not the 77,000 petition that's making the Vincent's board rethink. It's the comments of the minister. Has he made matters worse himself? Well, it seems like he realises he's in trouble and maybe he's backtracking a little bit. I mean, I think that this will continue to have legs. I think, you know, most people you talk to are furious that this wasn't thought through properly. Um, you know, the care of, of women and children in the state is an ongoing issue where it seems to be, you know, women and children are number two or number three and that an organisation that presided over the abuse of these people over a very long period of time could be involved in their health care is... Disturbing. Leo, do you have confidence in the way that uh, Simon Harris has conducted this issue over the past week and is he the man to resolve it? Yeah, absolute confidence in Simon and um, I think he's doing a very good job in a very difficult ministry and one of the things I've often said about health is um, uh, one of the big differences in health compared to my current department, for example, social protection or other departments is, is in health very often you've all the responsibility but not a lot of authority because the health service isn't actually controlled by the Minister of Health and you're dealing with charities, voluntary bodies. Because uh, it's know, a Section boards. 38 hospital, is that, is that your point? Um, it's, it's, just, it's just the way it's, the way it's structured. I, I can't but remember Section 38 he, 39, no, but no, but sorry, Why didn't he raise these questions about ethos and practice and so on before he launched the project last November? Yeah, well, what he said and and it makes sense, is that ultimately what was required was an agreement between the two hospitals, Hallis Street and St Vincent's, which are coming together now on St Vincent's campus. So what was required was an agreement that both of those institutions would be happy with in order for it to So why is he jumping up and down on Twitter? 
I'm not sure if he is jumping up he and down. Is He's just trying to he get people He tweeted, he tweeted during the week that there was three qu- fundamental questions that he was now seeking clarification from the HSC about all the things we've discussed. I mean, surely he should have done that months ago. Well, I think what he has done, and I would echo this, is is to call for cool heads. You know, we just really need to not do anything or say anything that might cause this project to fall asunder. You know, we know how long from previous experiences how long it takes to put a but project do you think like what, this but back But given the announcement to the review, do you not think what he has said has done just that? Well, I'd hope Vincent's will um, continue to go ahead with this, continue to honour the deal that they're a party to. Um, you know, I think everyone in this country, uh, including me, at this stage has a very dim view of religious orders, um, given what we know about the Magdalene Laundries, about modern baby homes, about institutional abuse. But at the same time, I think we do need to recognise that... Um, there are voluntary hospitals and voluntary schools uh, where, you know, nuns and priests and others stepped <clears> into the breach, provided education, health care, when nobody else say, did I'm, in the I'm past. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Minister, but, you know, acknowledging the abuse and the damage that these uh, this particular religious institution has done to people over a long period of time, five uh, residential, uh, five schools, um, involvement in the Magdalene Laundries, and to say that you acknowledge that, but yet you're willing to handle the care hand the care of women and children over to them yet again to give them a valuable state asset to provide them with money I, I think it's just so many people First of all I, I, do, I, do, I do acknowledge that I acknowledge it absolutely but I hope you'll also acknowledge some of the very good work that's been done uh, by by St. Vincent's um, and you know the, 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 the excellent care they have provided people but just be clear we're not handing over the care okay, to, that, to, that is not to, the Timmy, case first of all the minister's handling yeah. I have some sympathy for the, the position that he finds himself in he's, be, he's now between a rock and a hard place he's self-inflicted got, to some extent uh, he's got to respond to a backlash of public opinion uh, who are rightly concerned for, 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 for a multiplicity of reasons about the notion of handing over a state asset. Now, to me, that's a practice that's ongoing every day of the week. The Department of Sport invest in the local GA club, the local SARP club. They build facilities and they hand over those facilities to the entities concerned. For me, the biggest issue is about ensuring that the path to the future uh, learns from the past. And, and and what I mean by that is that there is absolute independence around the ethos of the facility. I don't actually mind in whom the property is vested because let's be honest about it. It's not as if the nuns are somehow going to be able to down the road turn this into some kind of an apartment block and sell it off. It will always remain as a medical facility. That's guaranteed. What's really at hand here is that the independence of the of the of the ethics and the clinical governance for me is 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 absolutely essential now whatever mechanism is put in place to protect that that's what we've got that's what we've got to get to okay well the final thing I want to ask each and I start with you Timmy is should we proceed with this agreement or should we review this agreement what should happen next well I, I think the approach taken by my colleague Billy Kelleher in writing to the chairman of the health committee so that this is discussed as quickly as possible uh, within within the Oireachtas, within within the, the, the Joint Oireachtas Committee uh, on, on, on Health, trash out and, and interrogate the points that have been raised by Justine McCarthy today to see whether uh, Tom Lynch's uh, comments are relevant, to see whether Kevin Dorn, Bishop Dorn's comments are relevant, and if, if, if the agreement's in place stands the test of okay. those comments. Margaret, proceed or review? Absolutely review? not. This religious order should not be in charge of the care. Even if it delays women. it by two years? You know what? Or I, scuppers it? I, I have to say that if I went into a medical facility and 
uh, there was a medical issue for me to receive a procedure, and I could not receive that procedure because the Catholic Church said so. I mean, that is just... No, state money should not go towards uh, funding. And finally, Leo, your position seems to be, irrespective of the petition of 77,000 people, irrespective of the use and distrust put forward by people like marriage, you're saying proceed regardless. Yeah, I understand the issue, but what we do know for certain is that Hollow Street, when it moves to St. Vincent's campus, will have operational, financial and clinical independence. So, um, you know, that's, that's enough for me to assure me that any procedure that's legal in the state will be available in that hospital and it's important that we now get, get on with it we need to we not, need to not just do this one we need to move the Coombe to James's uh, Rotunda to Blanchetown and Munchens to the, the Duradolla site for, in Limerick we, we can't have this going on or be back to square one and have uh, and not have that built in, in five or six years time My panel today you're listening to is Timmy Dooley of Fianna Fáil Leo Vradker representing the government and Margaret E. Ward Now yesterday um, Leo Vradker felt the need to unburden himself of a lead column in the Irish Examiner uh, where he talks about the future of uh, public and private sector incomes and pensions the headline is private gains need uh, not come at the price of public uh, pain and he starts it by having attack at, at, at commentators like myself, saying it has suited some vested interest to pit the public and private sectors against each other, stoking up resentments in a divide-and-conquer strategy. Those working in the private sector are encouraged to be envious of the public sector. As a result, many in the public sector bristle against the external attacks and misrepresentation. Neither side benefits, nor does the Irish economy. Leo, I have to say to you, what planet are you on in the context of last week... Tom Geraghty was on this station saying that the public sector unions are limbering up a year before the Lansdowne Road agreement expires to launch a pay claim for 1.6 billion, which will gobble up the entire fruits of economic growth. And you're ready to roll over and, and, and like a poodle, uh, have your tummy scratched for them. I mean, surely the, the, the one and a half million private sector workers are infuriated that they'll get no tax cuts because not only do we have the highest paid guardie in Europe, but these people all have their snout in the truck. Well, I imagine what we're seeing from the unions is is a negotiating position. So, of course, they're going to demand um, total restoration to pay levels uh, that were unsustainable even 10 years ago. Um, and they're going to try and roll back on some of the reforms and efficiencies that have happened uh, in the last um, number of years. Uh, and that's their negotiating position. The government is going to have a different negotiating position. Uh, well, tell us about that. Well, well, the first thing that's going to happen is is the, the, the Public Sector Pay Commission, uh, which is doing comparisons of um, public sector pay in Ireland with other countries, for example, with the private sector, will publish uh, its report, and that report will give us you know, accurate, detailed information about the differences that exist between Ireland and other countries and within Ireland. Um, and then also, um, we'll, there'll obviously be things that we're going to want to see happen to modernise the public service to make sure that patients and passengers, um, service users, pupils, students uh, get value for money. So there'll but be no, a negotiation, if you, and, if you and I'm sure we'll come to an agreement. If you look, and I think Pascal O'Donoghue put this well, saying in relation to the water agreement, uh, if that type of kind of soft politics was to prevail in public sector pay, we would find ourselves in an unsustainable situation. My point is this. Davies has done a report on this. that The 37% uh, 
preference in terms of public sector pay over private sector pay, they have defined benefit pensions, they have job security and there is no one in Irish politics prepared to stand up for private sector workers and say the priority should be income tax cuts over public sector pay increases. There's um, there's, there's space for both actually, um, so long as we don't do too much of one of the other and we always need to bear in mind of course that we do need to, f- to find some money for uh, pension increases and uh, increases some welfare payments well are we you saying the 1.6 billion is unaffordable depends on over what time frame it's spread out so you're waffling on that no no it's obviously unaffordable in one year or two it, it may not be unaffordable over a prolonged period but that's what the talks are going to be about and also also we have to find out what we're going to get in, in return for that um, one, a basic principle that does of course arise for example in, in the private sector is when there are uh, pay increases in return for that there's often changes to work practices productivity cooperation with new technologies and reforms and okay. that obviously will be we'll, part we'll of that we'll come mix. back to the pension plan sorry does anyone uh, in Fianna Fáil Timmy Dooley get the point that there are 370,000 people working in the public sector but there are 1.6 million workers in the private sector and someone needs to represent them well, Fianna Fáil has always been a pro-enterprise party, so of course we do. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I think w- what's often lost is when you talk about tax cuts, when you still have a, a huge deficit of investment in our services, in our infrastructure, to sort of be dangling the carrot of, of tax cuts and increased conditions for, for public sector uh, workers, in my view, uh, you know, belies the the necessity to invest very significantly in services and infrastructure, and that to me is the biggest issue. And but sometimes which, there's a choice between recruiting more people to the public sector and improving the service, and giving those working in the public sectors more pay. Oh no, I accept that, and I think if you look um, over the last four to five years in terms of the policies that we have brought forward and our commentary and and, and more particularly uh, our manifesto on the run into the last election which found a very significant level of support far greater than was expected where we didn't dangle that carrot of tax cuts and we didn't talk about reducing or obliterating or eliminating the USC and we didn't talk about... You did for everyone, sort of everyone earning under 80,000, no, which would be the bulk of the USC. Yeah, but I mean, that's, that's, on, that's on the lower end of it. We were, we were targeting the investment. 000. Well, I mean, the Fine Gael... Fine Gael no longer make promises. Fine, 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 Fine Gael concentrated on the best off in society and about reducing and eliminating their tax burden, whereas we concentrated on investing in public services, meeting the needs of society, rather than dangling the carrot... Uh, of so in a word, you what's your line on this back. 1.6 billion pay claim? Resist it or pay it? Negotiate. Uh, and of course people have come in with... with, with Alana McRae's dog, a bit of the road with everybody. No, no, it's about, it's about finding compromise, uh, Ivan, as you well know. Uh, and, you, and, and you'll be familiar with how people n- negotiate. They set out their stall to the greatest extent possible and there's compromise found somewhere in the middle. Margaret, I have the question. But it can't, be, it can't be at a cost to the very significant deficit that exists in public services and investment in public infrastructure. Uh, Margaret, I'm, I'm interested in your view, working in the private sector, on the substantive issue of private versus public. I just want to take the quote of Pascal Donoghue. He referred to the water deal, uh, which was really nobody pays anything, right? This approach may have worked for water, which is a relatively small amount of exchequer funding, but it's unlikely to work for bigger challenges such as pay poli- public pay policy or investing in new infrastructure. Do you have confidence in new politics being able to face down strikes or public sector pay claims that are over the top? No. 
No, I, I mean, I think it's true that there's been a, a you know, a lot of um, commentary whipped up over the years, pitting the private versus the public. But as somebody who has always worked in the private sector, and I run two companies, you know, it is not easy out there for people who run businesses, people who work in the private sector. When the economy changes, our jobs go. We don't have the kind of security and pensions that people in the public sector have. We take huge, huge financial, emotional risks, uh, relational risks to start businesses, to try to contribute to the economy. And I would really like to see this government look at the private sector and how they can do more in the private sector to to jobs and growth there, as opposed to protecting their public sector buddies all the time. I mean, and and I'd like to see in those calculations, but hang on, in the calculations that they look at, so they say, okay, if you add in the pensions of of a public sector worker, they make far more than the private sector. But what about job security? I mean, how is that calculated? Compared to somebody, you know, most people now, what, they only stay in jobs for a couple of years and then they move on, they go somewhere else. We have a huge number of young people who have who have jobs that they're not going to have for life, like the public sector do. Um, we people in the public sector, you know, what are their performance uh, KPIs? How are we judging their performance? You know, what if they're underperforming? What happens to them? I just think there's a big disconnect here between the two. And, and for the unions to be looking for a pay rise, I think at this stage is is a bit um, foolish. Okay, the other issue you raised in the column, which is a a really got on my goat in terms of not just you, but uh, in 2007 we had a green paper on pensions in this country. Uh, And I think the figure at that time was 41% of private sector workers had no private pension provision other than the old age pension. You quote a figure now of of 60%, which strikes me as incredibly worrying. Um, So we had the green paper. We had the OECD review of the green paper in 2010. And I think the dogs in the street know that if you're moving from a ratio of five workers to one retiree to two workers uh, for one retiree, we have a a time bomb ticking here. Now, in Britain, they introduced an auto-enrolment pension scheme. You seem to be biting the bullet here. And as a rule of thumb, sort of the the figures I've seen, not put forward by you, is 4% employee contribution, 4% employer, and 2% by the state, which would create a very viable fund to provide for pensions. That's deeply unpopular. The reason why governments, successive governments, have done nothing Employers don't want the extra cost. Employees don't want their pay deducted. Are you saying in this column, by 2021, this will be in place under you? Uh, Yes, in a nutshell. Um, What we do have in our labour market is we do have uh, a real divide. It's not about pitting public against private. It's a reality. It exists. Um, People in the private sector are paid less or much less likely to have any provision for an occupational pension, do worse when it comes to sick leave, family leave and all the rest of it. But usually when somebody starts that conversation, they'd be in your space, Ivan. They, they use it as, as, as a pretext or basis to attack the so terms what's your and conditions of public sector workers. What I'm suggesting is that some, on some things, the public sector actually has it right. And the public sector provides a pension uh, for all of our, pretty much all our staff. Not, not, not 100%, but not far off 100% of all public sector workers have an occupational but should pension. But private rectors did have defined benefit schemes. They've all been abolished after the recession. So, I mean, like, the point is this. No, some, Can you give some, us the some, blueprint some, of what you're proposing? Some companies have them. It's, it's actually the norm in the private sector for companies to provide nothing at all in terms of pension. It was a few good employers that provided... Uh, so, uh, what are you proposing? Benefits. What I'm proposing that we do uh, is that we follow the example that's been done in other countries, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, for example, to a lesser extent Britain. And what we do is we automatically enrol everyone uh, into a pension scheme, into a personal retirement account, which they own, they control, um, they put in a euro, their employer matches it with a euro, and using either tax relief or the SSIA type arrangement, the government puts in a euro. 
Uh, and what you do, obviously, is you start off very low. You start with kind of 1% a year, but over time you phase it up uh, to the kind of figures you're talking about. And is there an opt-out for employers there's, and employees? There's an opt-out for the employee, obviously. Uh, but what we found in in Britain, for example, is people don't opt out. You know, everyone fundamentally yeah. understands the way pensions work. You the rainy to, day, the long term. Yeah, well, first of all, you have to pay into it. That's, yeah. you know, no, nobody, nobody's going to give you a free okay. pension. How quickly, you have to pay, you have how quickly to pay, first could this have, be up First of all, you have to pay into it. And the sooner you start, the younger you start, and the more you pay in because of compounding interest, the more you get. But of course, people put it off, you know, because there's all their bills. You need to buy a house, you need to pay for your wedding, you know, you need pay to do all other things. But actually in Britain, where people were auto-enrolled, um, they tend to not opt out because once you're in the system, you tend How to quickly could this be up and running as a departmental operation at administrative level? Yeah, well, it's important to get it right, of course. Uh, so what we need is legislation. We need IT systems and financial systems. And I believe we can have the first payments uh, going into those accounts by 2021. People may, th- may seem that sounds a bit far off, but there's also another good reason to give people a bit of notice because absolutely people will have to factor it into their business plans because employers will be paying into a pension. Some don't already. Uh, and also people need to factor it into wage demands. And the way they did it in Australia, I think, was a, very, was a really good way. What they agreed in Australia was, you know, instead of getting, we'll say, a 3% pay increase every year, Instead, it was 2%, but 1% went in, into your pension. And there is an opportunity, I think, now to have a, have a okay. similar agreement around uh, that. Timmy, uh, is there a possibility of all-party consensus on this, or will people play politics with it? I've been told that by 2060, our unfunded pension liability is $324 billion over uh, 1.6 times the national debt. This, You see, the problem with Irish politics, everyone thinks... Short term, next election, next vote on Wednesday and the doll. This requires long term planning. What's your approach to it as Fianna Fáil? Yeah, no, we'd be very much uh, on the same space as the Minister in this regard because if everybody knows the, the, the time bomb that's ticking. Uh, and I get the point that 2021 before you start, but I think we'll have a crisis a lot sooner uh, than, than, than uh, 2060. Uh, and I think that will put an, un, an intolerable burden uh, on the state. Uh, so the sooner we can get it up and running, the better. Uh, I think as we as we move out of recession, and we certainly haven't uh, across the state just yet, that as people start to you know sort of rebuild their lives again, that they do so uh, in a in a more sort of managed, progressive, uh, and careful way, and that they will start to look towards the future as their conditions improve a little bit and recognise the importance about planning for the other side of. Uh, of of retirement. Many people in the past thought that the growing nature uh, in the value of property would provide them with uh, a nest egg. egg. And many people invested very significantly, as you know, in property, paid um, just the interest-only mortgages uh, and now find themselves in this dreadful situation where they they have a, 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 a where the bank effectively uh, owns the property. They still owe the bank very significant amounts of money uh, because of the the difference in value between what they owe and what the value of the property is, okay. and they have no chance of getting out. Uh, Finally, Margaret, as an employer, would you be happy to pay euro for euro? Well, I I think we absolutely need a scheme like this. We do, but I would worry about small businesses and how they could afford this. And would this apply to everybody? Say businesses with under ten people or businesses with under two people. I mean, we know the value majority of businesses out there are but small But those businesses. workers might need the protection the most? Yes, but uh, yes, but can the employer afford it? I mean, I think yes, you have to, but I just question how that's going to work for small businesses. Do you well, do you know? Yeah, well that, well, that is the detail, and that's obviously mm-hmm. among the things we're going to have to work out. Um, in in Britain, for example, they brought in the big employers first, and it's in the later phases they they brought in the smaller employers. Um, but I actually would agree with Ivan's comment there as well. Actually, 
the, the workers who need the most protection in the private mm-hmm. sector are not the ones who work for the big multinationals yeah, no, I and the agree big with firms. That, but it's, it's just ones. the way that you do it for small I, I, businesses. I think if you fades in over time, like anyone will acknowledge that pay levels in the private sector in 10 years' time are going to be higher than they are now. So what you're doing is you're phasing it over a period of time and you're giving... You know, there's okay. a bit of a trade-off between, between pay increases pay and, increase. and okay. contributions. You're listening to Yates on Sunday. We're talking to Leo Vradker, Timmy Dooley and Margaret Ward. Now, another story that was mentioned in the census figures, most of the headlines went to the Housing in Ireland report, but a very interesting uh, aspect was the huge surge in those declaring themselves under the religious category as Jedi. Over <laughs> 2,000 now officially say they believe in the Force. But what does Ender believe? You do realise that there's a, an energy, a force. And the force is what gives the Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It's the energy that drives us, it surrounds us, and penetrates us. You and I and everybody else hear something holding all of this together. It binds the galaxy together. I believe that that moves constantly through space and time. Pleasure to have in studio, Margaret Ward, Timmy Dooley and Leo Vradker. Now, as you may have heard in the news bulletin, the former Taunishta Mary Harney has accused current members of the Cabinet who are involved in leaking uh, very confidential Cabinet material. She accused them of being involved in a gross act of possible sabotage of the state. She was referring to a particular incident where a commercially sensitive part of the National Broadband Plan, which was to be approved by Cabinet, was leaked to a newspaper without the knowledge of the Communications Minister, Dennis Nocton. The former leader of the PDs was speaking at the Women in Media conference in Kerry this weekend. Here's some of what she had to say. But whoever did that and had access to that I think, uh, was involved in a gross act of possible sabotage of the state. And I don't like to use those words, but I think if you're a member of a government and you can't have the memorandum in advance to consider what you're being asked to decide, then we won't get good decision-making. You can't make government decisions up on the hoof. You have to be able to consider them, read the data, consult, maybe take advice from your officials and those that advise you. And if, as we've read recently, memorandums are being brought under the arms of ministers because of the sensitivity of the issues that are going to be discussed, and every minister, particularly every political group within the Cabinet, hasn't an opportunity to consider that, we are going to have bad decision-making at the very highest level in our country. And I regret that very much. And I believe anybody in government, there's about 19 people that sit around that table uh, who are worthy of being there, should also be worthy of the professionalism that goes with one of the most important jobs of all. Timmy Dooley, is that not a valid point made by Mary? I think it is. Uh, I think it's one of the difficulties that exists perhaps in, in the current cabinet or with coalition governments generally because there's competition for access to the media. The media is a much more diverse landscape now. People use it for self-promotion, for individual promotion, for party political promotion. So when you have competing interests around the cabinet table um, that are in certain silos, we, we see it with the independent group having a belief that they have some capacity uh, or some very considerable in, input above their numeric on, on occasion and they will seek to get their story out. And I'm not suggesting that, that, that any of them leaked 
information that that, that uh, Minister But the Minister spinning of government business has become so <laughs> important that sacrosanct procedures are being breached. I think sadly, yeah, but I mean, it's not today or yesterday that started either. Um, I think that's been going on for a while. It may have reached a particular point. Uh, I'm not sure of the particular area that she talks about in relation to Dennis Nocton, but Minister Nocton hasn't been behind the door at getting his stories out in advance of cabinet meetings either um, and he's been quite adapted at, at yeah, getting his I used to do that in government leak stuff and blame someone else um, and call for an inquiry it, 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 <laughs> that was internal department stuff it's not unusual <laughs> across the piece that those who shout loudest about leaks uh, from parliamentary parties I, I, I know you, of some I <laughs> Leo it's a disgrace um, I think yeah, I, th- I think Mary Harney has her finger on the button once again. Mm. Um, you know, cabinet can only work on the basis of two principles. First of all, that we're collectively responsible for decisions that are made. Even though you mightn't always agree with the decision, once it's made, we're all collectively responsible for it and have to support it and take responsibility for it. And secondly, um, that we act uh, confidentially uh, so that matters can be considered properly. And if things are leaked, the problem then is the only solution to leaks is for important decisions to come in under the arm, uh, to use the term that we use. So, you know, you might turn up at a cabinet meeting and there's a 70-page document put in front of you that you're supposed to decide on without reading, and that's not a good way to make decisions. Um, and But it's, I have to say, like, I've, this is, I've been in two governments... Um, it's not worse, <laughs> you know, that the leaking... Would um, you agree? Gross the leaking was much the same in, on, 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 when we had our, our Labour friends act, in government with us. Gro- so. Gross act of sabotage? I'm not sure I'd go that far. Um, I, that, that, I suppose that would be true if, if some sort of commercial deal or something fell asunder, but... Um, well, okay, basic principle, Margaret, basic, five basic or six minutes left. I want to go on to another issue. Uh, we have a general election in Britain uh, whereby... Uh, Theresa May is on the front foot. She's showing leadership. He mightn't agree with her on Brexit or, or whatever. We have an election in France. Uh, the next election in this country. A little birdie told me on Wednesday, he said, and he wouldn't be a fan of mine, but very close to end of Kenny, he said, I would you ever take a chill pill? End is going in a fortnight. Um, what's your take on... I mean, this this is one of the things that really pissed me off this morning when I came in. I read in the in the mail on Sunday Simon and Leo uh, are warned, even if they hint of an early election, uh, presumably a Taoiseach, they're toast. One insider added quote, there are a lot of people who are very comfortable in here now. They don't care whether new politics is working or not. Their only concern is to stay here and damn the consequences for the country. In other words, keep their salary coming in every month. Is this what Irish politics has been reduced to? Isn't it time with a new leader to have a new election? Well, I have to say, from the media's point of view, having an election happen here, as well as in Britain, and everything that's going on in the United States is going to stretch a very, you know, uh, reduced media to breaking point. I, my preference would be it's later, but if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. News is news. Um, but sorry, like, do you not think it's better to put this dog down called new politics because it's just not working? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't, I don't have an opinion on that one way or the other. Okay, um, Timmy Dooley, the the, the next question is this, that you're quite happy, whether it's Garda Commissioner or Water, to prop up on life support under Kenny because you know he's going nowhere and that suits your electoral uh, requirements. Will you give an indefinite honeymoon and a blank cheque to the new leader? Well, I don't see it in those terms, but I mean, if you talk about whether or not new politics uh, can change with the advent of, an, of the next election, uh, I would say no. Because if you look at the opinion polls, there's nothing to suggest that there would be any great difference in terms of the outcome. P- 
perhaps Fianna Fáil gains a number of seats, perhaps Fianna Gael lose. I don't know. But if you look at the polls, it's within those margins. So you don't change the fundamentals of the necessity for all those that are elected to work constructively to ensure that that, that a government exists. Um, I think the situation is very different in Britain. Um, I think Theresa May recognised that the Labour Party were on the floor, had no so, chance sorry, of survival. No my question is this. Do you think the election of a new leader actually hastens the timing of the next election or not? It will depend on the attitude taken it? by the new leader. It will, it will depend on the behaviour of the new leader and it will depend on whether or not they're prepared to follow the confidence and supply arrangement that exists, which uh, provides for Fianna Fáil uh, to facilitate the continuation of that government if the new leader, whoever that may be, continues in the same vein, uh, then, 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 then it certainly won't be, won't be caused from Fianna Fáil's perspective, but the new leader may have a different view. Uh, well, one of those people could be you, Leo. What, what is your stance? Because you've spoken about this during the week. What's your stance as Taoiseach about doing it Theresa May and looking for a mandate? That's, that's a hypothetical question, Ivan. So I can well, it's right. It's a very real leadership yeah, it's question. It's a real question, but I can only obviously give you a hypothetical answer. And of course, the, the converse of what Timmy says is true as well. It will depend on the attitude of Fianna Fáil and uh, and the favour of Fianna Fáil as well. But I, I don't envisage there being an early early election in Ireland. Um, really, for two reasons. First of all, I don't necessarily think that the outcome would be enormously different to what we have today. We're not twenty points ahead in the polls in the way that Theresa May is. And secondly, we are in a coalition. We've entered into uh, an agreement with a number of independents, uh, and I don't think it would be right for uh, Fine Gael as the major part party to, if you like, pull the rug out from under them. Ultimately, after an election, because of our electoral system, you're going to have to look for coalition allies. And where are you going to find them if you... Um, if, but if but you, do you not you see a situation, say, next autumn, that we lurch from one crisis, you know, lately it's been water and the Garda Commissioner, we lurch to one crisis on, be it housing or some controversy or other, and the government is constantly beholden to Fianna Fáil or that there's a lack of clarity or whether Fianna Fáil will bring it down. It leads to, as one civil servant told me, paralysis. Well, fundamentally, what it'll boil down to is to whether... Um, you can get budgets through, for example, uh, as to whether um, we can um, have an agreement with the public sector unions that you mentioned on pay, um, lots of other things. But, but you know, not, notwithstanding the fact that decisions are harder to make and slower to make at the moment, there are a lot of good things happening. So there are no circumstances where you at Taoiseach would seek a mandate of your own? Um, I don't envisage it. OK, we're going to leave it there. I want to thank our panel for the varied discussions in relation to hospitals, public and private sector angst and the next election uh, Timmy Dooley, a Fianna Fáil spokesperson on environment, communications the weather and a few other things uh, thank you for joining us, Margaret E. Ward of Clear Inc, RTE and lots of other things and Leo uh, Radker taking an important break from his round the country, it used to be rubber chicken in my day, now it's trendy beer and pizza, thank you one and all Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.